Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A little while ago, I came across a film called Lapwing. Down in yonder green field. Set in 1555 in the East Midlands, it tells the story of a small community of salt farmers living on the Lincolnshire coast. The boat will be coming in at the beginning of the month. Camp down on the beach. These marshes are ours. You stay away from us, dear. I was struck by the film as it reveals the impact of a little-known law called the Egyptians Act, passed in 1554. What was the purpose of this act? And what does it tell us about Tudor government and society? And why make a little-known law the basis of a film for today's audiences? Here to tell us more, today I have two guests. My first is Dr John E Morgan, a lecturer at the University of Bristol. He's the author of Counterfeit Egyptians, the construction and implementation of a criminal identity in early modern England, an article which explores the Egyptians' acts and how the Tudor state defined them. My second guest is Laura Turner, an associate lecturer in script and screenwriting at the University of Lincoln and the screenwriter of Lapwing. Laura has had more than 40 plays produced around the world. She's an associate playwright at Chapter House Theatre Company, Novo Productions and Petersfield Shakespeare Festival. And in 2020, she established her own theatre company, Fury Theatre, championing women's stories. Dr Morgan, thank you very much for joining me. So Lapwing jumps off the fact that we've got this act in 1554, the Egyptians Act. Who was the government referring to in the act? And given that it has Egyptians in the title, would someone from Egypt have defined themselves in the same way? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I think it's one that's potentially a little bit more difficult to answer than it first appears. The first thing to say is that it's not an act that is aimed at people from the country that we now know as Egypt. People from Egypt may well have referred to themselves as Egyptian when speaking in English, but this act was not aimed at those people from the country of Egypt, as we would understand it today. 
Rather, the Egyptians Act of 1554 and others in the 16th century sought to police people in the words of the 1554 Act, calling themselves or commonly called Egyptians. The shortened form of Egyptian was Egyptian, and in English we get the word gypsy from a shortened version of the word Egyptian. If we want to think about the kind of contemporary descendants of these particular people who were referred to as Egyptians in the 16th century, we'd be thinking about people from Gypsy, Roma and traveller communities in the 21st century. Okay, so we've got this word that seems familiar to us, but actually once you start to unpack it and think about the sort of Tudor usage, actually we're talking about something quite other to what it appears to be at first glance. Yeah, absolutely. And this idea of Egypt and Egyptianness is really interesting. And it's a question, why Egypt and why Egyptian, that historians haven't really got to the bottom of yet. There are kind of several explanations for it, the most common of which is that in the 14th century, Roma people migrated from a Venetian territory in the Peloponnese and that they'd been living on a hill there named Gyp. And that name of that hill, Gyp, gave rise to Egypt or Little Egypt as their supposed origin. And that may or may not be true. There's so much that we don't know about these people. But what we do know is that the name Egyptian stuck. And I think it's more the reasons why the name stuck that are interesting to us as historians. They tell us a lot about the people that are using that word, which are predominantly outsiders, not Egyptian people themselves. It tells us that they found that label quite attractive. It's a label that would have reminded them of non-Christian peoples in the Old Testament, for example. And this is a group who are constructed as outsiders, as outside the kind of realms of European Christendom. And so Egyptian seems to have been a label that stuck with kind of non-Egyptian communities. And for me, that's one of the reasons why it's fascinating. And presumably, given that we've got legislation against these Egyptians, there's something very pejorative about what it means to be an Egyptian or a gypsy in this time. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the things we see in the evolution of the definition of Egyptians across the various pieces of legislation in the 16th century is a shift in that definition. It starts off as a definition that is predominantly based around defining someone as having foreign origins, as being non-English in some way, to being something that's much more kind of expansive and can encompass many more different people. So we get to a point by the late 16th century in which English people can be termed counterfeit Egyptians in some way. So this is a really pejorative term. It starts off more or less neutral as a kind of a awkward or ill-fitting demonym for a group of people, a word referring to people coming from a particular place. But it does take on these really pejorative connotations across the 16th century and into the 17th century as well. So the 1554 Act isn't the first piece of legislation against the Egyptians. Where does it start? So the first piece of legislation is in 1531. There are four acts across the 16th century that refer to Egyptians. There's one in 1531. There's the one we're talking about predominantly today, the 1554 Act. There's another one in 1563. And there's a final piece of legislation in 1598 that also discusses Egyptians. And these counterfeit Egyptians by the later 16th century, how can we identify them? What do they look like? Yeah, so this is really interesting. So in our earlier pieces of legislation, it's obvious to those who are encountering these people that they are Egyptians. They're said to be people calling themselves Egyptians or people commonly called Egyptians. But by 1563, that first Elizabethan Act, particularly by 1598, there is a sense that 
these people are not true Egyptians, that they are in some way counterfeit, and that there might be people within their communities who are themselves pretending to be Egyptians. So the implication there is that they might be English-born subjects who have seen this way of life that is itinerant and potentially attractive to them, and they've joined this group of what would be understood as deviants or outsiders. And so the notion of Egyptianness comes to encompass not just those who are seemingly self-evidently defined as being non-English or foreign-born from this very particular group, but could also encompass individuals who might join that group and might adopt ways of speaking, ways of dressing and ways of acting which are associated with that kind of original Egyptian. So is it fair to say that it's becoming a concern with itinerancy? Because of course this is an age in which there's increasing concern about people being vagrants and being vagabonds and this sense of someone being rootless and masterless is deeply concerning. So it's kind of becoming that. But does it have its beginnings in a kind of, to use modern words, anti-immigration stance? Yes. The very earliest references to Egyptians in British and particularly English history come in the early 16th century. There are some slightly earlier, late 15th century references to Egyptians in Scotland. And those references are in quite convivial and very peaceable settings. They are records of payments to Egyptians for providing entertainment at a royal court, or they're records in much more mundane settings of Egyptians being paid or themselves paying for parish services, so paying for the use of a church house, for example, in the southwest of England. So you have these quite convivial and friendly interactions between Egyptians and settled populations in England. But in 1531, we see this change, or there's a kind of a growing change from 1530 in attitudes and behaviours towards Egyptians, particularly from central government, because there are concerns about some of the supposed and alleged crimes committed by these groups. They're claimed to be going about without any profitable or other proper way of supporting themselves, so without a proper industry. They're accused of doing things like reading palms and telling people's fortunes and futures. And this is seen to be deceiving people and particularly so-called poor and innocent people of their money. So in the 1531 Act, we see this quite tight definition of people who are termed Egyptian. They're supposedly outlandish people calling themselves Egyptians. And they had, quote, been going from shire to shire and place to place in great company, using what the Act referred to as great, subtle and crafty means to deceive the people by what the act refers to as telling women's fortunes and performing palmistry. They were also said to have committed many and heinous felonies and robberies. And legislation was required to deal with this group and to deal with the perceived problems of this group because they had these foreign origins. And so they could be dealt with within the English justice system, or it would be simpler and more effective, according to the government of Henry VIII at the time, to actually just deport these people and to get rid of them from the country. And so that was the intention of that act. And so it was really using their supposed foreign origins and their self-proclaimed foreign origins as a way to deal with the various problems that were being associated with them in this act. It's fascinating. I had never actually come across the Egyptians Act. I had in my work on late 16th century France come across the Bohemian, who I think must have also been Romany people who are considered to be concerning to the Protestant authorities whose sources I was reading because precisely they tell women's fortunes and they lead them astray. And so clearly there's a sense that 
Romani people are travelling around Europe and are being perceived as problematic by a whole range of authorities. Yeah, there's this really interesting history here that is one, I think, most clearly told of potential problems or issues between settled populations and Roma populations. But there's also one that's much more difficult to get at and only really comes to us through accidental record survival and kind of fragmentary evidence of much closer kind of cooperation and collaboration. And not necessarily in much of the English history, certainly that I've come across. But if we look across to Europe and we see some of the records of so-called Egyptians in Central Europe, in particular in the late 15th and 16th century, there are some wonderful examples of them being employed in a variety of occupations, things like metalworking, particularly performing arts, which we do see in England, but also things like agricultural labour, particularly in Transylvania, and even as executioners actually attached to the Ottoman armies. And so they do find these economic niches and are in some ways part of settled societies, cultural and economic worlds. But then because of this foreign origin, this uncertain way of life that they have, and this particularly visually distinctive cultural self-fashioning they have, very colourful clothing and way of dressing that's really uncommon in 16th century Europe, they are marked out as outsiders. And so they could be very easily defined as problematic and visually identified as problematic. And so they exist on this uneasy boundary between acceptance and persecution. And it's quite easy for them to be identified on either side of that boundary, I guess, when it's more or less convenient for the society they're engaging with. It's interesting that these people show up much more in cases where they're perceived to be problematic. And so we've got the sort of sources that come out of people being considered problematic. Integration disappears in the sources, you know, happiness writes white, as the expression goes. And so it just kind of doesn't appear on the printed page. Whereas, of course, once they're deemed to be problematic, then we are going to see them appearing in the materials that we have as historians. Absolutely. And I suppose it's one of those things, particularly identity, is only really captured when it's deemed to matter. And these four acts in England in the 16th century are all about identifying people and then dealing with them and their supposed crimes based on that identity. And so we have this really clear and quite sharp mechanism for identifying and dealing with people. And that creates this bureaucracy in the 16th century and this paper trail of people being defined in legislation. And then we have lots of records that surround their apprehension by law enforcement officials. And then if they've gone to trial, their arraignment, etc. And then in the most extreme cases, sometimes their execution. And so we have lots of records or comparatively large number of records that deal with identity when it is the subject of a legal proceeding and the application of these particular statutes. But as you say, we don't really have any formalised way of recognising or finding these people in moments of cooperation and integration. But if we are prepared, thinking about English history, to cast our net much wider and think about societies that are similar, for which evidence does sporadically survive, we can make some interpretive leaps and say things weren't that different here. So why would social or economic integration be that different too? I hadn't ever realised before quite how much the 16th century and early 17th centuries is a period of definition and identification and saying, well, this person's a witch and this person's a scold and this person's a vagrant, this vagabond Egyptian, that actually it's an age where it's all about identifying people. Of course, we've got the parish registers suddenly coming into use. 
But this categorization of people is such an important trend in this century. And only if you've just said that have I put that together. It's so interesting thinking about yeah how people are defined and labelled and the new labels that emerge across the 16th and early 17th century and how they're applied. And much of my work on this topic has been in the kind of legal and administrative sources. And there are reasons for that. I wanted to understand as much as possible the experiences of people defined as Egyptians in the 16th century. And so I felt the best way to do that was to go through some of the sources that would have directly impacted on their lives, the acts that would have been used to police and corral and potentially punish them. But there's a whole other side to this that is in the world of the arts, and in particular drama and poetry and literature in the 16th and 17th century, which is almost the other side of the coin, is the cultural arm of this politics and practice of definition. And so there are some really fascinating literary artefacts that we have that describe Egyptians and that do that kind of work of boundary policing, but in a much less formal way. And I think you see that absolutely with other kind of marginal and deviant groups as well. The figure of, for example, the witch is one that, yes, is constructed in legislation and through kind of formal legal processes, but it's also one that's produced on the stage and in verse. You've mentioned punishment. What was the punishment if a person was apprehended who appeared to be Egyptian? So the punishments changed across the 16th century and they became potentially increasingly harsh. So the first act in 1531 barred Egyptians from entering England and any Egyptian who was already in England had to leave the country within 16 days. If you didn't do that, you would have your goods seized and they would be sold and then you would be deported. Egyptians also lost a number of rights that were due to all foreign citizens in England. So foreign citizens had the right to have any criminal proceedings against them heard before a jury that was half English and half of their own countrymen. Egyptians lost that right in 1531. In 1554, the stakes were upped significantly. It was an act that was passed because the 1531 Act hadn't really worked in the way the government had sought and new, much harsher, stricter measures were put in place. So if you were found to be assisting an Egyptian to come to England, you would be fined £40, which is an enormous sum in the 1550s. Anyone who had newly arrived in the country and who was deemed to be Egyptian would have one month to leave the country or be liable to suffer the death penalty and the loss of any land they had or goods they had. So their goods couldn't be inherited by any surviving family members. Egyptians who were already in England would have their property confiscated if they didn't leave within 20 days. It was possible for people to be excused from some of these harsher punishment if within 20 days an Egyptian agreed to, and this is using the language of the statute again, forsake their naughty, idle and ungodly life and company and enter the service of some honest or able inhabitant within this realm, then they could be exempt from these kind of really harsh punishments for as long as they were forsaking that naughty, idle and ungodly life in the terms of the act. The 1563 Act was quite similar, similar punishments, but it applied to a much wider group of people. So it wasn't just people who called themselves or were commonly called Egyptians, but anyone who could be said to be disguising themselves 
by their clothing, speech or behaviour to look like or cohabit with Egyptians. If they were found to be doing this for any period of time within a month of the statute, they were to be judged a felon and therefore suffer everything that came with that, which was the potential of the death penalty, losing all of their goods and their lands, etc. They were also denied what was called the benefit of clergy, which is the exemption of clergy or anyone who could recite the neck verse from the Bible from execution. And again, Egyptians could also be deported. Interestingly, the 1563 Act makes a provision for any Egyptians born within England to be exempted from deportation. If they were exempted from deportation, they had to be bound to undertake honest labour. And it's these kind of provisions that show us that this becomes a legislative campaign against mobile people rather than simply just against foreign or outlandish people who are perceived to be committing certain crimes. Actually, the problem from parts of the 1554 Act, but really clearly in the 1563 and later in the 1598 Act, the problem is about people being mobile and supposedly idle and ungodly and not undertaking settled labour and not belonging in a particular parish or with a particular trade or occupation. So I suppose the question is, and I know this is a big question that lots of historians have tried to tackle in different ways, but why is this age so concerned about this combination of idleness and itineracy? What fear does it spark in the heart of the Tudor government and Tudor people? There are a number of ways of looking at this question. One is if we think about it in terms of the long sweep of the Reformation and the real reversal in fortunes of the poor in previous Catholic and then post-Reformation Protestant thought. And that is the valorization of poverty and the celebration almost of poverty in late medieval religion, as opposed to in much more puritanical or at least stricter forms of Protestantism, the sense that poverty is in some way a moral failing. It might even be a sign of one's non-elect to heaven in the afterlife. So there is that sense of there may be a religious dimension to this, or there is certainly an overarching religious context to the changing value of poverty in the kind of broader cultural world of early modern England got a sort of prosperity gospel coming in in other words yes i think there's also an economic context that's potentially really important which is that across the 16th century we see prices rising but standards of living not keeping up with them we see an increasing number of masterless and mobile people as you've mentioned and this means that there is a significant anxiety about who are the undeserving and who are the deserving poor i think in previous Catholic modes of thought, the poor were almost universally deserving in some way. Poverty was something to be treated and given charity. But in the later 16th century, with a rising number of people who are poor, there's a fundamental shift in ideas of deserving and undeserving poor. That comes predominantly from economic changes in the 16th century. So there's a large and growing constituency of masterless people who are unable to find work, unable to support themselves. And that's not because they had any of the existing accepted kind of signs of poverty. They may be unable to support themselves through disability, for example, but rather because there weren't the economic opportunities for them. Previously, they might have been understood as undeserving poor, but because they were unwilling to support themselves in some way. But now they are able to work, they want to work, but they can't find work, or they can't support themselves. And so there's this like fundamental confusion at the heart of the second half of the 16th century thought about who is poor and who deserves charity and who deserves assistance. And Egyptians really kind of fall right into the middle of this big economic and cultural changes because they're people that don't settle down 
and work in the ways that English people are accustomed to seeing. They aren't belonging to a parish and they're not integrated within a system of poor relief, for example, that relies so heavily on one's belonging to a place. Rather, they move around and they don't necessarily fit into the ideal of a productive agricultural nation or a productive proto-industrial nation. And so they fall between many stools. And I think that's the theme in the history of Roma more generally, but particularly of mobile people in the 16th and 17th centuries. And of course, this distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor has pretty much been with us ever since. Do you have a sense of the extent to which these acts against the Egyptians were enforced? Yeah, we have quite a good sense from local court records. So that's the records of sizes in particular and the correspondence between magistrates, justices and the Privy Council of how these acts were enforced. And the early years of the first act, so basically from the 1531 Act forward, we see some interesting confusion and kind of reticence on behalf of local law enforcement and local government officials on what exactly to do with these acts and what to do with the people who fall within these acts. There's a really interesting case from Hereford, actually, in 1530, so just before the 1531 statute, but coming after a proclamation by Henry in 1530, which was to encourage local government to enforce statutes against begging and vagabonds much more keenly. And in Hereford in 1530, a group of pilgrims from Little Egypt, these are our Egyptians, are apprehended. And the mayor is really unsure of what he should do because he's apprehended them according to the directive of this proclamation in 1530. But he says that he can't see that they've actually done anything wrong. He says they did no hurt as I can perceive as yet. And so he writes to the Privy Council saying, what on earth should I do with these people? And this kind of an implementation of central government and legislative directives continues in the 1530s. So in 1539, there's a correspondence campaign from the Privy Council out to the regions trying to get people to actually enforce this statute because they're receiving correspondence from all over the country saying we've apprehended Egyptians but we're not quite sure what to do now. It might be expensive to deport them particularly if they're apprehended in somewhere inland so Staffordshire for example there's a case of a group of Egyptians being apprehended but it would be very expensive for the people of Staffordshire to fund their deportation that the local justices want to know what on earth they should do and this goes back and forth for a little while and the Privy Council Cromwell in particular gets quite frustrated and ends up in 1539 writing to advertise the sayings, the language of the Egyptians and directing justices of the peace to properly enforce the statute that is now on the books. So there's this interesting kind of problem, I suppose, for government in the 1530s, which is that they've got legislation which they think will do the job, but it doesn't really do the job because often people are apprehended having not really committed any crimes other than being an Egyptian. And so that's why we see the 1554 Act and we see other acts later down the line that have a much clearer sense of purpose. And that purpose is for people to be settled and to renounce an itinerant lifestyle and to take up these honest occupation and much more settled forms of labour. And we see that there are instances where at Assizes, large groups of Egyptians, up to 100, sometimes more, are all apprehended and tried all at once. And the direction is given to the justices to deal with some of them as Egyptians. So that would be following the logic of the statutes that end in execution. 
and deal with others according to legislation that relates to vagabonds and rogues, to use the contemporary term. So they wouldn't be executed, but rather they would be committed to undertake their honest, industrious life in a settled particular place. And this was a way of striking fear into those populations and saying, you know, if you choose to maintain this itinerant lifestyle that is considered to be ungodly, etc., then this is what happened to you. But you do have a choice because we don't believe necessarily that there is such a real thing as an Egyptian, as this kind of comes out in those later acts, that you could be a counterfeit or that everyone was in fact a counterfeit. You can save yourself by committing to staying in one place and labouring in that honest and godly fashion. And so the implementation of the laws is interesting and it is reasonably well documented in things like the Assize Court records, which do survive in quite full capacity for parts of the country. Now, Everything we've been talking about today in terms of the sort of evidence you're drawing on is kind of statutory and legal sources of acts of law and court records, church records and so forth. And I suppose this is often the case when we're thinking about different marginalised groups, women's history, for example, we're often relying on representations, in this case representations of Egyptians or of Romani people that have been imposed on them. Do you think there are ways round this? Are there ways that we can recover the voices of these people? Is that too much to hope for? How do we study a marginalised group, in other words? I think this is a really interesting question, and it's one that I guess extends beyond the history of Egyptians and into the history of marginalised groups more generally. Voice is an interesting one because we do actually have some of the words that Egyptians were said to have used, and those words have been used by historical linguists to demonstrate that the people who were being identified as Egyptians were indeed Roma. Those sources can be really useful for that kind of establishing of fact, but those records of Roma speech, those records of the Egyptian language, as the 16th and 17th century sources refer to it, are themselves quite problematic because they are snippets of vocabulary and snippets of language, and they're recorded often by people who are seeking to uncover the truth of this supposed counterfeit and dissembling group. And so the motivations for recording those voices are not there in order to show us the ways of life of these people or to give them a place in the historical records, rather there is a way of enabling people in the 16th and 17th century to identify who these potential counterfeit people are in order to help them keep their distance or report them to the justices, for example. So some of the actual voices that we do have, or at least the snippets of language that we have, are interesting and can be really useful for certain historical inquiries, but they're the language but not the voice of the people who use those words. I think we can probably also do a couple of other things. We can read against the grain in that classic social history way. We can look at the sources that we do have and think about them in ways counter to their original intention. So we can look at vocabularies, for example. We can look at the often really prejudiced descriptions of Egyptians and think about what can we recover from that information that might be otherwise useful. And I think the last thing that we can do, and that's maybe what I've attempted to do in my work on Egyptians, is to sketch the limits of possible or likely experiences. So that's why I think legislation is important, because it tells us, well, how might people have acted or how might people have been treated? What could they not have done? And how did people enforce the law or choose not to enforce the law? And so we don't necessarily get a good sense of how any one individual's life course went, but we have a good sense of how one's life might have been if they fell into certain categories. Thank you so much, Dr Morgan, for this introduction. 
to this fascinating topic of the Egyptians, to use the language of the time, and how complicated a subject it is because it takes in questions about insularity and immigration, but also these other ideas about how we get at the voices of marginalised people, how people of difference were treated, the whole othering idea, how it really takes us into a cultural shift in terms of identifying and labelling and dealing with people who won't conform in a really vivid way. So thank you for sharing your work with us. Thanks very much. It's been really interesting to talk and it's been really good to learn of this new film, Lapwing, which I will go away and watch with great interest. So thank you. Stay with me as in a moment I'll be talking to Laura Turner. She's the screenwriter of Lapwing, a fascinating new film set against the backdrop of the Egyptians Act. Hi there. I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm now pleased to be joined by Laura Turner on Not Just the Tudors. Laura is the screenwriter of Lapwing, a new film set against the backdrop of the Egyptians Act. Laura, it's a real treat to speak to you about the film because it's so interesting for me to talk to someone who's working on a creative response to history. So for those who haven't seen the film, can you give us a flavour of the story? 
Absolutely, yeah. So Lapwing is set in 1555 on the east coast of Lincolnshire. And it is the story of a young woman named Patience, who is essentially an elective mute because she has a speech impediment. And she lives in a very closed and isolated community of salt farmers, living a very isolated existence on the salt marshes of Lincolnshire. And within this kind of small community, Patience is very much controlled by her brother-in-law, a man called David, who is a very toxic, very abusive individual who uses various methods of coercive control to keep this small group of people close to him. But the journey for Patience is really very much a kind of coming of age story for her psychologically as a character as she begins to see a world beyond this kind of very limited existence that she's experienced. And that really begins when she meets Rumi, who is a young Egyptian man who is fleeing the country in the wake of the Egyptians Act, which was passed the previous year. And the experience of their romantic connection, but also the connection of friendship and the kinship that they find with each other, because they both represent something other to the people around them so they're able to find a very particular connection because of their different experiences but also their shared experiences and this kind of puts patients essentially on a collision course with David who begins to realise that he is losing grip on her and starts trying to find more manipulative ways to keep her close but patients is very determined and a very strong-willed young woman who really finds ways to make her voice known despite the fact that she is a very silent presence throughout the film but it's really very much that kind of story of her finding her voice in other ways through action and through choices that she can make. That's really interesting, actually, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I know that you're passionate about empowering women in theatre and film. You founded Fury Theatre to focus on female stories. And one of the challenges we have in history is finding women's voices. And so it felt like a paradox that you had chosen to make your central character patients into an elective mute. Why did you do that? Absolutely because of those elements of the female voice often being so missing either from the history books or from the historical records of the time. And also I think if we think about stories that are still being told today, there is still so much work to be done in terms of giving a genuine platform to the female voice and to the female experience in its many multifaceted ways. And actually it was both a combination of the historical representation of women and the silencing that has taken place and also the silencing that takes place across all times for not just women but people who are victims of coercive control and emotional abuse which was such an important part of the story that I wanted to explore. I wanted people to be able to put themselves in the shoes of a woman who was silenced by the world around her and it became very important actually that Patience was a kind of silent presence within the film because that enabled us to to really lean into that unique perspective. It's a difficult one to tell, and actually working in film was an opportunity to do that. It seemed to me that there's three ways of thinking about the film. There's the historical context, and then there is the setting, and then there is the story, I suppose. And I kind of want to think with you about each of those things. So in terms of the historical context, so... 
early on in the film we have this husband and wife and their grown son Rumi who we've already mentioned who come to find David and are sort of denoted as foreign by their appearance and accents and pay him to board a boat so that they can leave England and David's quite unpleasant and says if the Queen's justices come looking he's not going to help them even though they've paid him money and so this is where we get a kind of first peek at the Egyptians Act which is the kind of context of all of this. Why did you decide to use this act as the basis for a film. How did you come across it? So the genesis of the film was that Lapwing was a short film. It was always a historical set piece. It was always set in that location, but it started off as a very kind of intense 10 minutes, which was all about the relationship between patients, her sister Lizzie and her brother-in-law David and the toxicity there and the act that patients moves towards without giving too many sort of spoilers towards the film. There's very much a journey of self-growth and self-worth that patients goes on that enables her to act and stand up for herself. When I then started talking with Philip Stevens, who's the director of Lapwing, about expanding the story, I knew immediately that I needed somebody else within the film that patients could connect with on a level that was very different to the relationship that she has with her brother-in-law. David is obviously a very toxic one. She does have a positive relationship with her sister Lizzie, but her sister Lizzie is also a product of the same situation. And she can never quite understand patients' experience of the world because with patients having a speech impediment and having received so much hate and so much condemnation because at that time if you were a person who couldn't speak the word of God then you were nothing essentially. You had nothing to offer, you had nothing to give, you were a subject of complete suspicion to the people around you. I had a sense that I wanted it to be a romantic connection as well. I would say that at its foremost Lapwing isn't a love story. There are many different love relationships within the piece but I didn't want want patients to be defined by her relationship with a man that was always very important to me what was important was that there was a connection with people who also had a shared experience of feeling different of being made to feel like they were other so I was doing a lot of reading about the period at the time particularly about Lincolnshire and the East Midlands at the time which is where I'm from and I'm very passionate about telling stories about that place And I came across, in some of my historical research, into salt farming, the industry that this group of people do on the beaches of the salt marshes of Lincolnshire, I came across a reference to the Egyptian Act. And I'd never heard of it before. And the Tudors is absolutely the kind of time period that I've always been obsessed with. I absolutely love it. And I was immediately intrigued. I was like, how have I not come across this before? What is this? So went away, started to do more research into that. I was already a big fan of Miranda Kaufman and her writing. So went over to her blog and she'd written a piece about the Egyptian Act and about what happened, how it was passed, what the impact was. And I was really taken with this idea. Again, it's about shining a light on the bits of history that we don't necessarily see all the time. And the fact that we're very quick to think that issues around immigration and refugees and racism are more modern issues. Obviously, Miranda Kaufman in her work very much shines a light on the fact that that's not true at all. These are things that have always been in our societies and in our social makeup. So that was fascinating to me. And then reading about the fact that actually within the Midlands itself, there were these justices of the peace that would go around making sure that anyone who they perceived as being different. And I think it was fascinating 
fascinating to me from a cultural point of view to think that actually this term of Egyptian was such a kind of broad catch-all term. It was very unspecific. I think there's so much there that kind of feeds into just this sense of fear and a fear narrative that was really helpful in terms of shaping David's character as well. The Egyptian or Romani family that feature in Lapwing are an essential part of Patience's story, but they're also an essential part of David's journey to shine a light on those very narrow-minded attitudes, those very fear-driven narratives that have consumed certain people's mentalities all the way through history and very much still today. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, even the word refugee, of course, comes from the 17th century, comes from the Huguenot refugees. So it's very much of this period. But I'm intrigued by what you said there about the Egyptians Act being this capacious kind of critique and persecution of those who are other outlandish people calling themselves Egyptians. You know, so this is people who are foreign looking, they're unfamiliar, they're strange. Why did you choose to give Rumi and his family, I suppose, the appearance of Egyptians as we would think of Egyptians as opposed to a sort of 16th century idea of Egyptian? That was very much something that, again, from the initial kind of blog that I read by Miranda Kaufman on the Egyptians Act and on that question over, well, what was the definition of an Egyptian person at that time? And the linguistic and genetic studies that have occurred since to shine a light on the fact that actually there was a real sense of a wide origin in the Indian subcontinent, which was something that I was really fascinated in, again, because that was very much something that I didn't know. And I thought, well, if I I don't know it. I bet lots of other people don't know it as well. It felt like that was a really interesting element in terms of the connection and the types of connection that patients and Rumi and also Rumi's parents could all have together. There's a quite important and pivotal scene in the film where Patience goes to visit Rumi and his parents on their small encampment on the beach. And she experiences something so different to what her own daily life has been. And it's just their family. In that moment, it's not about making broad sweeping statements about anybody's kind of culture or what anybody's experience is on a big scale. It's about a very small microcosmic moment of family and the different ways in which Patience's family talk and communicate and the ways that Rumi's family communicate with each other. And the fact, again, that not only is there with Patience and particularly Rumi's mother, the kind of barrier because Patience can't speak or chooses not to, she has a stutter and she chooses not to, but also I very much wanted it that Rumi and his father have some English. Rumi's mother doesn't. And so there's that kind of linguistic barrier between them that Patience can't understand her as much as she can't understand Patience. But I, I suppose to develop that kind of idea of it's not just about the singularity of speech. That's not the only method we have of self-expression, of connection. I felt that was really important, actually, that these are two women with very different life experiences who sit together and share some food and connect. And it doesn't have to come through a very emotional kind of discussion. They don't have to talk about anything. It can be a very human moment of connection and a very interesting different sort of maternal energy that patients experiences. So the whole family became really important and they each have a very different effect on patients and influence her journey of growth in very different ways on bigger scales, but also very much on that kind of small scale. One last thought then, by the end of the film, 
Lapwing had me reflecting on marginalised people, on outsiders, how they're treated. And it made me wonder, do you think that fictionalised accounts are necessary to try to recover, if that's the right word in this context, the experiences of marginalised people? I really do believe so. And I think that for me, it comes from a question of empathy. I think the way to reinvigorate those stories to, as you say, perhaps rediscover a story that's been lost or has been unheard is to inject that empathetic experience for somebody. We can never know exactly what it was like to be anybody in the Tudor period. We can never know that explicitly. We are physically and psychologically different beings today in 2022 to who people were in 1555. But emotionally, I believe we are the same. We feel the same things. We go through so many of the same experiences and thought processes on a human level. And I think that is the only way to create a fulsome picture of the past as well, to invite people to put themselves in somebody else's shoes for a little while. And I think as a writer, it's a privilege to be able to do that. It's also a responsibility. I think we do have a responsibility to share different ways of experiencing the world and different ways of seeing the world. And just putting it there for people to take the opportunity. I think that was what was always important for me with Lapwing. I had those kind of key messages and key themes at the heart of the piece when I was writing it and the director knew that and the cast knew that and we were all working to the same song sheet as it were. But putting that in front of an audience, I want that to be an experience where they immerse themselves in something new, something different, and then hopefully they take something from it. And I think people should take all sorts of different things from it. And I love what you've conveyed there, this idea that the past is a foreign country, and yet they're also people just like us. And that's that sort of thing that we have to hold in tension all the time when we're dealing with these people. Thank you so much for talking to us about Lapwing. For those who want to see it, where should they go to watch it? Yeah, so you can find Lapwing on Amazon Prime. It's also on Sky Movies and on iTunes as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to get to chat about the Egyptians Act and that focus of the film in a little bit more detail because it's definitely been something that it really piqued my interest when I was doing my research and discovering it. And it's definitely been something that has chimed with a lot of audiences and there's been a lot of questions around it. So it was great to talk about that. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.